Hi there, I'm Mark Wade from Transperfect. Thanks for joining us on an episode of uh, Transperfect Lifestyle Talks. Recently, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Andrew Lloyd from Acaster Lloyd, and he, he mentioned a couple of fascinating things. My takeaways were where we talked about how we normally capture data from patients in the disease state. Absolutely. But what impact does that have on the, on the subjects around them, their family, their extended family? What impact does that have? The other thing that he talked about was scheduling these PRO events, these, these data capture, because some disease states are symptomatic and some are asymptomatic. So scheduling, he talked about scheduling being a terribly important thing that often is overlooked. And then the other thing he mentioned was wearables and how wearables are sensitive enough these days to trigger an AE, but they're also sensitive enough to trigger a PRO event. Anyway, without too much about it, let's get into it. It's a fascinating conversation. Andrew, welcome. Thanks, Paul. Let's get right into it, um, because you, you, you've published in COA for quite some time. So in COA, we talk about capturing the patient's voice. That's very, that's very, very important today. The notifying bodies want to see the patients, want to hear the patient's voice more so than anything. I was wondering if you could talk around what about the impact of, a, of the disease state on a family, siblings, parents, the whole lot. And, and, and is that something that we should capture and maybe just talk through what your feelings are around that? Sure. Yeah, thank you. So I do think this is a really interesting area. This is something that certainly decision makers, I think, in the last few years have become much more interested, particularly in health technology assessment, bodies such as NICE. There's a recognition, obviously, that chronic disease, particularly in especially paediatrics, but also diseases of the elderly and so on, um, people have a lot of dependency and there's an impact on the carer. There's an impact on person who's the primary who has primary responsibility for looking after the person who's unwell but there's also a knock-on effect on the rest of the family or at least there can be and this is quite complicated so there's a there can be a psychological and social impact on um, the rest of the family members uh, but also some of the some diseases maybe um, obviously have a strong genetic component which means that uh, other members of the family may have the condition or may be developing the condition. It raises a whole load of issues. Um, it's very important information to capture though, because arguably if a treatment can successfully treat, let's say a child with a uh, developmental condition, then that treatment will also reduce the burden on the carer and can also improve the spillover effect, as they're called, um, for the rest of the family. So these are important considerations. And, and, and the opposite is true as well. If, if the, the, the treatment is very invasive and it creates great discomfort for the child, that has an impact on the caregiver as well, the, pay, the parent as well. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, some of the treatments are quite unpleasant. There might be an intrathecal injection, for example, yeah, yeah. which is very unpleasant for any parent to see. Um, but also just having to go for regular treatments can be very disruptive for the rest of the family and that that is an impact that probably needs to be considered as well as well as the impact of the disease so you're quite right good point and if, uh, there's a there's okay i'm opening a, i'm opening a box here but there's also the whole ethics issue of around consenting extended family siblings uh um other caregivers how does one go how, how do you even think about that how do you go about that because that's enormous Yes. Well, yeah, that absolutely. So that raises a lot of challenges. Um, in the context of clinical trials, obviously, you know, we consent the patient, 
um, in a pediatric trial, we'd consent with parents. Uh, we don't typically consent brothers and sisters and granny and everybody else. But right. if we want to capture data from those people, then we'd need to. Um, I think it's it would be very challenging to incorporate everybody and the data data from everybody in the wider family network. Oh no, I'm just being that maybe maybe um, an older sibling. And again, again, here's another ethics issue. What's the cutoff of age? Who knows? Should it be an adult? Who knows? But but I think I'm not saying suggesting everyone, granny and aunties, but definitely the ones who live live it day to day. Siblings, it will be it would be a great example. Yeah, and it. So that's right. So I mean, you could imagine a situation where a t an older teenager perhaps is asked to consent to fill in some questionnaires, and they maybe they don't want to do that. Sure. And then they might feel like they're under enormous pressure to do that because their younger brother or sister, but maybe they think their younger brother or sister won't get access to the treatment if they're not willing to take part. I'm sure that would never oh be the case. But you yes. can imagine how, because yeah, they're, yeah. they're a child, they don't understand necessarily how these things work. So it does, this, this, we have to tread carefully here. There's a lot of issues that are raised, I think, um, and uh, this needs to be thought through. And, and this is where you bring in expert expertise from other areas. So not just COA people, not just community trialists, but you know people who are used to working with families, ethicists and so on, to get different perspectives on these issues. Yeah, I, I, I can only imagine. It's an incredibly thorny thing, but I think if it does, if it does inform the endpoint, then it's useful data. Right. And yeah. it goes with, yeah, it goes with what the regulators are saying. So, um, can we just talk about, um, for, for, particularly for, for disease states like that, can we talk about scheduling when we should capture that data? Um, let, me contact, let me put it in context. Um, you and I talked before uh, around oncology and how challenging it is to choose when to capture that data from patients, just before treatment, just after treatment, because the, well, let's be honest, the mindset is incredibly different. They're very lethargic after the treatment. And before the treatment, they have how horrible the treatment was a couple of weeks ago. You know what I mean? So that, that old yeah. phrase, eating food is quickly forgotten. So talk to me about the the, 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 the the timings of these things. I mean, sure. So I do think uh, industry may often uh, follow the, the easiest line in as much as let's have data collection every three weeks or every three months or whatever it is um, without necessarily thinking this through. Certain disease areas, certain diseases have um, burden imposed by the treatment, like you say in oncology, where uh, you know going for treatment rounds of treatment uh, causes acute onset of side effects, which can affect someone. Um, and we want to understand how bad that is. We want to understand what these dips in someone's quality of life are like while they're undergoing treatment. But the other the other challenge, of course, is the more sick someone is, the less likely they are, they are to fill in questionnaires for us. Um, and we don't want to impose burden when someone is really unwell. So there's always a, there has to be a balance between those different factors, and that's a, that is a real challenge. I think the other aspects as well are the kinds of conditions where we have um, acute exacerbations, um, which are at you know unpredictable points in time. So if we have data collection every three months. And you have a data collection on Tuesday, and the following Thursday, somebody starts having an acute exacerbation. We're not going to capture the impact of that event because we've just missed the data collection. We've just had the data collection point. So, in those types of studies, I think arguably you really want to be timing the, the 
COA data collection to the event where it's possible. And I think that is very possible in clinical trials because, of course, if someone has an event, um, then that's a, that's a safety signal. That's a safety issue. It's, you're going to have to capture safety data on that event. So there's no reason why that couldn't also trigger additional COA data collection to understand, A, how bad that event is, and B, how long it lasts for. And I was going to ask you, I was, I was going to ask you that very question around the triggering, that that event would trigger something. Back to what I said, if they just had an exacerbating uh, event, are they going to be, are they going to be um, conducive to completing a, a, a measure at that time? Yeah, no, I mean, it's the same problem, isn't it? So it's a very good question. Um, so possibly not if it's quite severe. Probably not if it's quite severe. Um, maybe the following day they might be, or two days later, and you may be able to rely on a little bit of recall as to how bad it was, particularly, you know, the, the simpler a measure is, maybe the recalling your, what your responses would have been to that measure might be simpler. Um, so yeah, but that is a challenge, though, and that's an important thing for anyone to think about. Um, how realistic is it that we'll get data, and will we get real, you know, will we get unbiased data if we're looking to capture data when someone's having a severe event? Yeah, I think that for 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 asymptomatic diseases, this is a considerable problem because we the, nine times. I mean, you mentioned this before um, for cardiovascular disease states. You know, they can have an event um, and. It might be just an MI, or it could be something like that, or it could be a a stroke. You know, when 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 do we when do we capture that data? And say symptomatic. Yeah. Well, so as you say, I mean, it's important for us to understand data at baseline. I think when somebody enters a trial, because they're entering with risk factors in a in a cardiovascular trial, and then we have a treatment that changes those risk factors, presumably. Um, but what we're trying to prevent, as you say, are these events downstream. And we want to understand the impact of those events. Now, um, a big event, obviously like a stroke, maybe unfolds over the first few days and weeks. So maybe you do have a wider window in order to be able to measure the impact of that stroke. Um, and you need multiple follow-up points to understand how much someone's recovering. MIs, I don't know, I think that's a bit more variable. Um, we obviously, we want to understand what day one, day two, day 24 of an MI is like. Um, right. The other thing, I guess, about an MI in terms of um, understanding its impact on health is if you have an MI, it changes your risk profiles for everything else. So um, that's the other key thing. But yeah, these are these are big measurement challenges, I think. Sure. And then, and then patients who have MIs and don't realize they're having it because they're so micro sometimes. And that, again, massively increases the risk going forward of having a major issue. Interesting. Mm. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to pivot uncomfortably, but I'm going to pivot because of time and stuff. Um, I wanted to talk to you about wearables, wearables because you've done quite some work in wearables. And it has come up before on a, on a, on a podcast, wearables, and I would love your opinion on a, how useful are they? Is it a seismic jump forward or is it something that will just, it's a nice to have it, it's good to have. Where do you stand on wearables? So, um, so most of my experience with wearables is in the area of neuromuscular disease um, where wearables provide insights into 
the nature and quality of someone's movements, which you can't measure easily in other ways. There are some other ways, but essentially I think, I feel like it's one of the best ways of measuring um, the quality of someone's movements. Um, this really is a bit of a step forward in my mind, particularly in neuromuscular disease, because it's an objective way of assessing the quality of movement. And if you put that in the context of a clinical trial, maybe a placebo controlled trial, you can understand how in one arm, perhaps children continue to deteriorate because they're not receiving treatment. And in the other arm, they're stabilizing or improving with treatment. And, and as I say, the wearables provides a relatively objective way of being able to assess that. Um, it's not the only way, of course. And as you know, we were talking about earlier, um, there are uh, video capture methods which yeah. perhaps provide the flip the other side of that coin. So um, we can understand with the video capture methods, we can understand much more about the movement in the context of the, at the child's home. So what they're actually doing, are they surfing on the sofa? Are they, you know, are they falling over? The wearable device will pick that up, I guess, but how much is mum and dad helping them move around or their brothers and sisters and that type of thing? And, and that goes back, that goes right back to what we were saying at the top of this call when we were talking about um, a, a parent is going to be burdened uh, seeing their child unwell. Um, and they, I mean, as a parent, you can't help yourself but to, to help. You can't. So sure. you're right. You're right. And for, because the the, the, the the sensors don't capture the video of mum and dad or whoever helping the, the, the patient up. Um, yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a big thing. But wearables and video, to me, that's a pretty powerful combination because that captures the whole holistic view of the patient going through that disease state. I th well, I would say it captures a lot. I wouldn't say it captures the whole. So I think okay. you're right that the video and the, and the wearable together provides a lot of insight into particularly the movement, um, but the, the whole other aspects of it, which we still need to, will always need to ask questions about is the subjective elements of health. It's yeah. pain and discomfort. It's um, worry or anxiety, concern, depression, and so on. None of that stuff can be measured with a wearable device. And, no, and that's right never be able to be well, realistically so we will always need COA measures um, but I think the two together does provide or the three together provides a very powerful uh, way of assessing outcomes potentially and I think we still need to understand these things and obviously one of the challenges with wearables is the vast amounts of data they produce and yeah. how we can process that in a way that is transparent to a decision maker yeah, and, and that's the thing. It's, it's it, and, and this is I'm, I'm going to pivot very nicely into 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 AI because there's vast amount of data. I mean, AI is a very data hungry endeavor. Anyway, um, right. can can could AI and this this is very theoretical, but could AI provide some real benefit here? Just... You've got to think so. I mean, I'm not an expert on AI, but you've got to think that if you're taking um, video footage of uh, say a child with Duchenne or a similar condition, um, and then at the moment we're currently relying upon a healthcare provider or practitioner to give us a rating of the quality of that child's movement. You've got to think that there's a massive application potentially for AI to provide us with that more standardized way of assessing the quality of the child's movement, um, their gait, um, their reaching, and so on. Um, and then that starts to make you think, well, uh, can the AI technology allow us to tie together the wearable data and the video data together? Can AI technology allow us to use video capture 
in, in conditions that we don't currently use video capture for because it opens up ways of analyzing that video data that we haven't previously been able to do and standardize it. So I feel like that is uh, people far cleverer than me, I suspect, maybe working on these things. <laughs> I, I think that, that may be something we start to see more often, in, particularly in some developmental conditions, um, not necessarily neuromuscular, but in other areas such as ADHD, maybe, um, or in um, perhaps in some diseases of the elderly, um, or in uh, types of problems that you know middle-aged people can have, such as MS or Parkinson's disease. So all sorts of different applications. You could potentially see AI being used to process vast amounts of data. I, I agree with you, by the way. I mean, we've all read about uh, how AI imaging has helped in terms of breast cancer detection, early detection. So I, I like you, I'm not, I, I don't pretend to be an expert in AI, but I cannot see how it would not be transferable to something like this. This would be, it almost is built for it. One, one would yeah. think, one would think, maybe we should get an AI SME on, the, on this podcast to answer those very, very, very questions. Andrew, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you now, just as, as we wrap this up, um, COA, we, we've come a long way. We've come a long way from paper to ECOA. We've come a long way. Yes, the ECOA paper argument still goes on. I can't believe that. Um, full disclosure, Andrew and I were at a conference last week, and, and this, this very same thing came up 20 years later. Anyway, where, yeah, I know, where, yeah, where do you see where do you see COA in five years from now? And, and where are the, the shortcomings? Sure. I mean, obviously, when you look back, we see a lot of progress. It's now almost standard to include COA measures in clinical trials, to understand the value of a treatment, the impact of a disease on a patient. Well, there's a massive place for COA data. Um, I think moving forward, there's still a lot of challenges for us. I think we have a lot of challenges still around interpreting what, exactly what the numbers mean. Uh, we have questionnaires that produce scores on different dimensions of health. Uh, it's not altogether clear. It's not clear to me. It's not clear, I don't think, necessarily to decision makers what these scores mean and what the importance of changes in those scores mean, and indeed the methods around assessing the importance of changes. So that's an area I think still needs a lot of work doing on um, to really understand that. But, you know, we have made a lot of progress. There's a lot of uptake in the acceptability of the measures, um, and they are very central in decision making. So, you know, I, I don't think we should necessarily be too down on ourselves as a field. But I think I think the people in the field have made done huge amounts of really good work. I think there's still a lot of challenges ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry if I sounded very defeatist there when I said I can't <laughs> believe that argument's looking. Well, maybe I did. Maybe I did. Okay. On that note, I want to say thank you, Andrew. That was really exciting. Um, today, I was joined by Dr. Andrew Lloyd. He's a partner at Acaster Lloyd Consulting. Um, please subscribe to the, the podcast. It will be on your, all your major streaming um, platforms in the next month or so. Prior to that, it will be Transperfect Lifestyle Talks. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Great.